Hi there. You're listening to Development Unplugged, hosted by the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. Here we are providing a platform for cutting-edge thinking and debate on global issues and international cooperation. Whether you're a social sciences major, a journalist in pursuit of answers, a program officer brainstorming on that next project, or the CEO of a nonprofit, this is your source for all things international cooperation. I'm your host, Nick Moyer. In this podcast, produced with the support of Crestview Strategy, one of Canada's fastest-growing public affairs agencies, our guest host, Jason Clark, is a senior consultant with Crestview Strategy, and he will discuss how the current political context with the new federal minority government is likely to impact the international development agenda with experts in the field. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jason Clark, Senior Consultant with Crestview Strategy here in Ottawa. Joining us today in conversation, Sarah Kennel is the Director of Government Relations with Action Canada, and Stuart Hickox is One Campaign's Canada Director. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining us. What we'd like to do today is turn our gaze to Parliament Hill to understand how the current political context with a new federal minority government is likely to impact the international development agenda. Um, What we saw in in 2015 ahead of that election was the Liberals setting out a really ambitious plan for Canada globally. Um, Since that time, we've seen the launch of, of the FIAP, the Feminist International Assistance Policy. Canada hosted the Women Deliver Conference and the 2015 Global Fund Replenishment. Uh, We saw new investments in in SRHR, grassroots women's organizations, the Green Climate Fund, and the Thrive Agenda. I think really in many ways the government moved the needle forward, uh, but as I'm sure we're going to hear a little bit about today, funding levels really flatlined compared to our our peers in the OECD. Um, At the same time... Don't uh, steal our thunder, Jason. (laughs) At the same time, I think, you know, we've seen the world become a more uncertain place. Uh, Donald Trump's ascendancy to the White House has led to a renegotiated NAFTA um, and an American first foreign policy occupied really significant bandwidth within the Trudeau liberal government in the last parliament uh, and and may have pushed off other, other priorities. When we look forward, Canada will need to contend with a forthcoming UN Security Council bid, ongoing trade tensions, uh, redouble efforts uh, on achieving our Paris climate commitments, uh, and balancing uh, the country in a way that they can return to a majority territory in, in the next election. That's, that's what their, some of their priorities are going to be. So with all that as context, uh, let's, let's dive in uh, and, and look at how politics is impacting uh, international development programming. To start, within the new minority government, we guess that policy priorities are likely to change. We've seen a little bit about that. Where do the two of you see the international development policy agenda heading in in the next few years? <laughs> Sarah, can I take this first? Please go ahead, Okay. <laughs> well, that was quite the introduction, Jason. Thank you, first of all, for inviting me here today. And I just that was quite the overview, really. And, and I, I think the thing that's, that comes through all of it, there's a tendency now to look inward, right? To think, okay, the next parliament is all going to be about domestic things because there's the battle for you know, getting Quebec back or where, where the conservatives are going to land in terms of their leadership. It's got to be domestic, domestic, domestic. We're hearing about that. And that's consistent with what we're seeing in the rest of the world, which is essentially a retreat from globalism. This retreat from looking outward and coming, coming back inward a little bit. I think, though, there's another way to look at it, too, that now is a better time than ever to reassert Canadian leadership internationally, to assert more of a global leadership role. Um, we've seen through, you know, the, even the Conservatives in their, in their uh, 
search for a new leader. Marilyn Gladue, for instance, I think she's one of the first to declare leadership, focusing on a new climate change agenda. And I know we're not here to talk specifically about that, but there are some linkages that and intriguing linkages among the parties now in this next parliament between climate, security, international development that we think as a development organization, we should explore and exploit, frankly, a little bit more to build consensus for a more robust role for Canada outward looking in the country and that we could build consensus among different parties and the public for that, particularly around climate change, because it seems to be the issue that's top of mind, both for the government emerging for the, the opposition parties and the public, frankly. And, and there can be an argument made that really every every policy is a climate change policy in, right. in a global climate crisis. Um, Sarah, where do, where do you see the policy direction going? You've done a lot of work over the past five years that was, that was very successful. Thanks. Thanks for saying that. And, and thanks for having me today. Um, yeah, I think it's an exciting time. And, and certainly, as you made reference to in your introductory remarks, um, the focus on global issues in the last couple of weeks has really demonstrated I think, a keen appetite on behalf of this government to focus on those issues. Um, I think that one, for me, factor that remains to be seen in terms of how this government reacts to those global issues moving forward is the outcome of the conservative um, leadership race. I think, particularly from a sexual and reproductive rights issue, you know, the outcome, um, whether it's a social-leaning conservative or more fiscally, economically fiscal, I should say, leader, um, will really have uh, an impact in terms of the extent to which that party will push Canada to be active and how that activeness will look like on the global scale. Um, I think there's no question about it that this focus on domestic issues will be prominent in this uh, in the next couple of years. Um, that being said, I mean, we just saw our Minister of um, International Development, Karina Gould, deliver a, a, a pretty substantial um, speech at the University of Toronto last week. She used words like human rights, globalism, liberal internationalism, good governance, strong emphasis on continuing Canada's commitments. Um, but as Stuart mentioned, you know, I think where the rubber hits the road is whether Canada will actually put its money where its mouth is on this. It's great to talk a lot of great uh, words and, and speak um, a strong rhetoric when it comes to defending and promoting human rights internationally. What gives me hope right now is that with the Conservative leadership race, with the fact, in fact, that the Conservatives proposed cutting aid in the election illustrates a fundamental problem that the sector needs to address is that Canadians' perception of what aid is, how effective it is, and how generous the country already is are perceptions that were locked in a previous era. There hasn't been a positive, thorough engagement and conversation with Canadians about what aid is, how it's connected to climate and gender and rights, security, trade, all of these things. You know, it's our job essentially to help articulate the policy opportunities for the government and to build consensus among the public by making these issues relevant to Canadians. We frankly haven't done a great job of that as a sector. We haven't been united behind a single ambitious ask. I mean, some big victories have happened over the past few years. The, the fee app is there, the focus on sexual and reproductive health and rights. I think those are, are fundamental. And I'll, frankly, too, I think the Conservatives made a misstep somewhat in, in proposing the, the aid cut considering their leadership on MNCH under Harper and other things like that too. So there is opportunity here through the leadership as well as through a focus on globalism that the new minister is bringing to uh, put a package together to sort of help articulate this better and make the, make the case to Canadians that will give the, the government support it needs to be bold. 
I think one thing, um, if I could respond to that, I, I, I completely agree. I think um, where our sector has not necessarily taken full advantage of opportunity before us is in the absence of linkages between global and domestic priorities. I think it's easy for us now to tell a story between um, the impact of climate change at home and abroad, the impact of human rights violations at home and abroad. I mean, if we look at what's happening in BC right now, um, there are certainly connections that can be made in terms of what we're doing internationally to defend human rights and how we're treating Indigenous people on their sovereign land in BC. Um, and and I think the, the development sector needs to take full advantage of those conversations in order to tell that story and build momentum for why Canada should be caring at home as it does abroad. And, you know, in on the issues that we work on, sexual and reproductive health and rights, the Pharmacare announcement is a great opportunity to talk about access to contraceptives and what that means for young people in Canada and the empowering factor that has on their lives and their futures and the exact same investment that we're making internationally. So I would like us to, to look at those intersections a little bit more, especially in the context of universality and the sustainable development goals. Well, and I don't mean to keep cutting you off, Jason, as the host, <laughs> but this is fantastic to have this chat because I really believe and support the notion that of intersectionality and making that link between domestic and international. I mean, the, the, a great example from our own experience last year and in the broader sector was the Global Fund replenishment. Um, it wasn't really until we started expanding the conversation beyond the traditional sector organizations that we were able to build more consensus in the sense of urgency around the need for Canada to increase its pledge along the lines of its peers. And I actually really respect how the government responded to that kind of pressure, bringing in, you know, indigenous groups, um, scientists, academics, uh, other thought leaders, and in the AIDS, HIV, LGBTQ communities, drag queens. I mean, these are issues that touch us at home and abroad. If we're able to make the connection between the domestic sense of urgency and very personalizing these issues, and it, it strengthens our confidence that we can make a difference in the world, as well as our ability to mobilize Canadians to give the government cover for making those increases. And that's the fundamental basis of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, right? Is that is that universality principle. Um I would totally agree. I think the huge opportunity for us as, as a sector right now, as we look forward, is is to build to build that conversation with Canadians. We you know we saw millions pouring out onto the streets during the climate marches in the campaign. Um, that is is an opportunity of, of very engaged Canadians. Um, and climate change is a key example of, of something that that easily makes sense. You know when we when we have floods here or droughts there. Uh, that impacts us, but but you can easily see how that impacts the the poorest women and girls across the country. I, I think that that's an that's an easy connection. You touched a little bit on on Minister Gould. What do you think the opportunity is for her to leave her stamp on on the role? I think, as we've discussed, you know, unless we see a significant and sustained increase to the official development assistance budget in this mandate, um, we're in trouble uh, as a sector, as a global community. I mean, the the impact that Trump, I think, is having on um, the discourse internationally, the retreat from globalism, the retreat from UN mechanisms, the retreat from development assistance is matched thematically with, you know, direct attacks on human rights, direct attacks on sexual and reproductive rights through the reenactment of the global gag rule. Unless Canada is prepared to step up, not only through the feminist international assistance policy, which is awesome, and we should be promoting that as much as possible and doing everything we can to implement it to its full potential. We need money to implement it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the other side of the thing 
for me is, you know, um, when Minister Freeland was in her role as foreign affairs um, minister, she curiously made numerous references to a feminist foreign policy that would accompany a feminist international assistance policy. And to me, that is super freaking exciting. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to be holding them accountable to actually delivering on that promise. What does the policy look like? What does it entail? How does it bridge the conversations between development assistance, foreign policy and trade? Um, because that's the conversation that people want to have. We can't be talking about Saudi arms deals and, you know, delivering education to girls um, in silos. And, and you know, we also can't be establishing massive budgets to fight every single issue that we have. And so in order for us to, to have a meaningful impact and, and for, uh, I think, Minister Gould to have a legacy contribution in her role as development minister— we need to see that increase to ODA. We need to see the full articulation of the FIAP, and we need to understand what Canada's feminist inter- uh, foreign policy looks like. And just to jump in for one second, you know, I think if I was sitting on the other side of the table in the minister's office, I would uh, say that the last government did did a sweeping number of things on a large number of issues, right? Whether that is uh, significantly increasing the defense budget um, and and trying to advance procurement, whether that's the LC initiative, um, whether that's uh, establishing ambassadors to to climate change, women, peace and security. Obviously, we talked a little bit about the development of the FIAP and a lot of the work that's gone in across the government on, on climate change. But what I'm what I'm hearing from you is is a little bit more interconnection and and how that plays into a broader strategy for for Canada and the world. There's a reason, sorry, we merged the department, right? That CEDA joined with DFAID at the time. I think the vision was to ensure those intersections were being made from a diplomacy side of things, from a trade, and and also development has been the last one to, I think, join, get on the bandwagon. So let's take full advantage of, a, of an amalgamated department and, and make that And happen. that's an interesting one because it wasn't exactly a popular move necessarily at the, at the mm-hmm. time. Um, but I think in hindsight, you know, a lot of us have, have seen the advantages to, to that as long as it works in, internally. And you have business cards, right? I don't think their branding is totally up to date. But yeah. <laughs> details. <laughs> I'm glad you're here, Sarah, because, <laughs> well, personally, too, I think we look at the last five years as, as foundational. I mean, the sector was coming out of what many would consider to be a bruising time of restraint and cutbacks and then the economic downturn, where the government was focused on key element and a valuable element of international assistance which we think was a foundation piece of the FIAP. You know, there's, we need to have an objective, mindful, and uh, data-focused look at who's done what and recognize, and this is what gives me hope, that all parties have either been involved in proactive, progressive policies in Canada or support them. Uh, that there isn't one party that owns Canada's role in the world and that, that's what gives me, me hope, notwithstanding the recent suggestion of cuts, which, again, I think was just founded on this misunderstanding that Canadians have, which is part of our job to change. But I'm glad that you guys are here because part of the foundational uh, efforts over the past few years is broadening and deepening the understanding within government and outside of the importance of sexual and reproductive health and rights in tandem with the evolution of thinking on things like gay rights and LGBTQ issues, you know, which became an issue in, in the last campaign. And frankly, which I would be really surprised if if the conservatives don't try to tilt a little bit back towards the center, because that's where Canadians are. So I think there's been a lot of hard work that's been done. We were waiting. Our fault maybe in the sector has been 
waiting a little bit for the intention of this government to manifest itself in investment uh, and not being organized necessarily with a sense of urgency that we probably should have brought to it because we expected them to just do what we ex- what you know the policy led us to believe that they were intended to do. But frankly, Minister Freeland did set the tone pretty, set the bar pretty high in terms of expectations for foreign affairs. Development is not a key element of it. It provides an opportunity for Minister Champagne to take advantage of that. She was preoccupied with NAFTA and things like that too. No one expected Trump to win in 2016. So I think we need to give this government a lot of credit for leading on the policy front. But you're right. Unless we start investing, putting our money behind the policy and helping to build consensus across the floor on it. Canada's reputation in the world and our effectiveness in other areas, trade, security, climate change, et cetera, are going to start being eroded, if not they haven't already. Mm-hmm. And maybe I could just jump on that too from a strategy perspective. I mean, I think um, it kind of the next question, and I'm sure Jason, you're, you're probably irritated right now because I'm taking. No, this is great. <laughs> this, this is, is great. This is exactly what everyone wants to hear. But, you know, like, where do we go from there? How do we secure an investment? And I think, Stuart, to your point where, you know, we we as a sector have maybe be, been on the back foot and, and you know, oh, we mm-hmm. have evidence and we have policy and we have, you know, <laughs> we have the moral imperative and arguments to defend why an increase to the aid budget is so critical. That's not enough anymore, right? Like, no, I'm so glad you point that out. Like, if we could pivot to what do we need to do yes. as, a, <laughs> and, as a sector? And I know there are massive conversations within the sector at play that are bringing together really diverse partners, and that's critically important. I think from a political strategy perspective, um, I would like to see the sector invest more in advocacy. And I think that's one of the major challenges we've experienced is that organizations have been really good at resource mobilization, really good at public engagement to tell those stories often of, you know, the work that they're doing internationally to, albeit a small minority of Canadians, but still telling that story is critically important. Um, Where we haven't been as active, I think, is really engaging in advocacy the way other movements like the women's rights movement, like the climate movement, like the LGBTQ movement that has, you know, secured the right to abortion, the right to gay marriage, um, you know, progressive carbon pricing tax, uh, you know, all of these things need a sustained advocacy movement. Um, and, and the experience that we've had thus far, 10 years coming out of a Harper government that wasn't super keen on advocacy, um, we're just rebuilding now. And I think the development sector has a lot of um, space to catch up on that. Front. And yeah. what, our, what our listeners can't see is a lot of nodding heads around the, around the table. <laughs> I totally agree with that. And, and you're right, we were put on our back feet just because of the circumstances, but also because we really didn't think we needed that kind of focus. We thought that this would just naturally happen. And that was a mistake on our part. The government needs permission to do this. They need cover for it, uh, as well as good policies. And th- I think the main thing that I want to con- not conclude with, but just sort of lead towards is like, The recognition at one is we can't do this alone. We can't do it even with a couple of other partners. None of us in the sector has the resources, focus, or expertise to create the kind of conversation with Canadians that we need to have to get the country back on the path to being at least average among the OECD countries. We are less than half. 0.4 on the scale of 0.7 is half, and we're at 0.28. So it's kind of shameful in a way. But pointing out the fact that we are not there is not going to get the job done. We've looked at that. We need an aspirational, common, high-level ambition that we all agree needs to be met and then coordinate closely in government relations, communications, and strategy 
to make sure that we develop consensus beyond the sector to push government to do it. Not necessarily even to push, but to give them the momentum they need to turn into those investments. Because we're really talking about billions of dollars per year in increased need just to get to average. Mm-hmm. What do we need to be doing to bring more more Canadians to the table to share with with their political leaders what the vision is that they want to see for Canada and the world? Well, I can take that one. Uh, <laughs> as a campaigner and a marketing guy, look, there are two ways we could have gone about this. We could have beat the government over the head and all governments about how bad we are. We're not going to do that. That's not, that's not going to work. Canadians, frankly, don't want to hear that. We could also say, this is how much we need to invest to get to that point. $4 billion a year sounds like a lot of money. And frankly, it's irresponsible for us to ask for a lot of increase at a time of fiscal restraint when reconciliation is a focus when other domestic issues are more important to Canadians, climate among them. Uh, What we need to do is set an aspirational goal, but back it up with storytelling. Back it up with ways to describe to Canadians what what could we achieve in the world if we just did this. If Canada just reached the level of average among OECD countries, how many girls in school would that be? How many babies vaccinated would that be? How much... How many women empowered in businesses? With that? What impacts would that have for trade, security, climate change, sustainability? We've been working for a year to articulate that. We call it the 10 areas of impact. And I think it's a really powerful notion that we need to lead with aspiration, but not just idealism, not just, oh, Canada should do this because it's the right thing to do, because Lester Pearson said we should, because other governments, those kind of things are locked in the past too. This isn't about Canada saving the world. It's about doing our part. And there are solid policy options in each and aspirational goals, but also real measurable impacts. And when we start explaining to people that this is going to make a marked difference that's going to have effect on our own lives down the road through security, et cetera, and trade opportunities, not just the right thing to do. I think it will be easier. We need to set the bar high and then tell stories that mobilize Canadians and bring other people into the conversation. I also think that we're at a point now where a lot of Canadians understand that the world is, is a very uncertain place at this moment. We've seen that through our relationship with the United States and, and with everything that's gone on from Russia to China to, to the recent events in Iran. How do we want to engage them more? Not only what are the stories that we want to tell, you touched on that, but how do we get more Canadians to step up, to come out, and how do we touch them where they are and, and have that conversation? One thing that we've been thinking about a lot is because we have the benefit of working, you know, in Canada to advance sexual and reproductive health and rights and internationally um, is, is, and I mentioned this earlier, is how can we be um, connecting the conversations that we're having internationally? So connecting the commitment that we've made on women and children's health and rights with a strong focus on sexual and reproductive health and rights to conversations that Canadians are having. So, for example... Uh, the great advocacy work that's going on in British Columbia right now to ensure everyone has access to free contraceptives. That's amazing. Like, can we then be linking that conversation to exactly the work that we're doing internationally with the exact same objectives and goals? Um, similarly, I mean, you know, we're, we're facing a clinic closure in New Brunswick. Uh, the only freestanding abortion clinic in the province of New Brunswick is going to close any day now. Um, these are the exact same conversations that um, Global Affairs Canada is funding internationally. It's being on the front lines of the reproductive rights movement and, and you know, supporting financially and politically the work that those, uh, you know, feminist activists are doing. I think the more that we can tell the story of universality um, across 
you know, the work that's being done in Canada, the work that's happening internationally, the better positioned we are to make the case for further investment in development assistance globally. I think the other point is socializing development outside of the development sector, particularly among political actors, right? If we could get every single cabinet minister around the table to be um, lining up behind Minister Gould and saying, I believe in this too because it impacts upon my ministry, then we're setting ourselves up for success where decisions around budgetary allocation are being made. And I think too often development is viewed as a subsector off in its own realm. And that's just not, um, I think, reflective of the reality that we're living in in 2020 right now. Yeah, those are awesome points. Uh, and I think I want to add to this and take it to a, a little angle a bit too. It's important to, I think, frankly, it would be fairly straightforward to bring in non-traditional influencers, activists, organizations, frankly, corporations, the non-sector philanthropy sector behind an ambitious ask, an ambitious vision for what Canada could do in the world. I think at a time when other countries are retreating, if we say, let's dust off this vision of the country and essentially be the country that most of us already think we are, but are not. I mean, that's kind of the, the magic formula is that Canadians mostly think that we're, we have stepped up in the world, that we've increased our aid. They're shocked to find out that we do less than, than that. And so there's that little bit to work with there. But um, we, we have to, as a sector, also recognize, and I know a lot of sector organization leaders will be listening to this, is that we don't have agreement among ourselves that there needs to be a dramatic increase in ODA. Because when we talk about the sector, we talk about it like it's this monolithic thing, but we're very different organizations within it. The, part, the implementing organizations, the advocacy organizations, the niche ones, the rights ones, there's not a lot, there is not consistent agreement necessarily among us that ODA is a component that should be the, the focal point for all of us. I think it's essential that we get to that. I think we've seen a lot of progress in the last little while that that's emerging, that we if we continue to fight for a decreasing within a decreasing envelope, it just pits us against each other. That's got to stop. And one of the things that I've heard on on more than one occasion, and and we talked about this a little bit earlier, is that international development isn't necessarily a, a, a vote getter. And to Sarah's to Sarah's point, uh, I think it is going to be critically important for us to bring other members of the cabinet table into the conversation. I think we probably have one of the most globalist. Mm-hmm. Um, internationally minded cabinets that, that Canada's had in a very long time. Um, well, and really they're sh- already talking about global issues connected with, uh, you know, domestic issues all the time. Absolutely. Ever since this election and every speech, it's like it's there's a connection there somehow. And and for for me, when we look at it, when we look at engaging other ministers, I think, um, you know, we have the very clear ministerial mandates. But the the other element is going to be not just us speaking about this, but it's about constituents. It's about you know, individual citizens that that are standing up and and that are also sharing this uh, across the board, really across the country from coast to coast to coast. Um, And, and having, having that, that conversation, I guess when we, when we look at it, what would be your piece of advice or how, how would you want to engage with, with other ministers uh, when, when we think about making the case for ODA? Well, I'm looking at Sarah. She's looking at me. (laughs) Hopefully we haven't run out of steam here. But the thing is, look, fundamental to our success is to redefine an ask that's ambitious that most people can get behind. 
we think with two thirds of the population having voted for quote unquote progressive policies in the last election, there's a basis point for there. But what it needs to be done is sharpened up. The first point of sharpening beyond setting an ambitious goal that is easy to explain to Canadians is asserting clearly and fundamentally within government, across the aisle, and in the, the entire society that our role in the world is not partisan. This isn't a liberal thing. It's not a conservative thing. It's a Canadian thing. This is what we can do. We can afford to do it. It will yield benefits for us in terms of all the things we've mentioned, trade, security, rights, environment. I had a fantastic conversation recently with National Chief Belgarde about this because we hear time and again among our 200,000 members and supporters across Canada, what about Indigenous issues? Why would we support the fight against poverty overseas when there's such extreme poverty here at home? It's a valid issue that we can't ignore, especially if we're asking for Canada to step up and do much more. But Perry Bellegarde and I landed on a key phrase, poverty is poverty. The people who are fighting to, to expand the rights and quality of life of Indigenous populations in Canada are the same people who will care about doing that in the developing world. We need, need to make those connections so that they're not exclusive and bring those forces together to realize that this country now and in the future has the resources, capability and expertise to be a leader in, in helping the rest of the world and engaging the rest of the world. We just need to embrace that opportunity and by d defining it that way, we are not being exclusive. We're not excluding certain people of political, political beliefs, and we're not excluding the corporate sector, and we're not excluding indigenous populations. We can do all of this. And, you know, I, I just want to pick up on that, Stuart, because I think it's an important point. And for a country as well-resourced as Canada, there should not be an excuse of we're going to, you know, fund X and not why and yeah it's a total dodge it's it's like to um, suggest that that's yeah that's necessary and it's frankly insulting to the work of indigenous rights activists who have been putting their lives on the lines for mm -hmm. generations in this country um because it's also those same indigenous rights activists that were at the forefront of um negotiating the un declaration on the rights of indigenous people globally our indigenous community in canada has been so active globally in part because they haven't been able to seek the legal recourse for rights recognition domestic They've had to turn to international uh, human rights accountability mechanisms. So to say that these issues are disconnected and, and one is, is um, you know, takes higher priority than the other, I think, is a bit of a, um, uh, a misinterpretation of the situation. Um, another, I think, coming back to your point around telling the story and getting behind a common ask, I think at a very pragmatic level, I think the work ahead of us is to um, – you know, recognizing this isn't a, a partisan issue that that, you know, the sector is going to be here five governments from now, the next government. We're not going anywhere. Um, we still, I think, have um, um, the responsibility to look at mandate letters uh, to your point, Jason, around connecting with different ministries and looking at the intersections. So, for example, our economic and social uh, or employment and social skills development minister has the responsibility of exploring child care in this mandate, right? Um, there was an explicit reference to unpaid care in Minister Gould's mandate letter. Uh, what other intersections exist and how can we be leveraging those against each other would be um, something that I think we need to do sooner rather than later. Well, Stuart, Sarah, 
Thank you for, for joining us for, for Development Unplugged. I think both your political insights as, as well as your experience uh, are, are pretty critical to how we should approach this, this next government and how should, we should think about what the, what the real political opportunity is for, for our sector to, to really not only ensure that Canada is playing the role that we want to see it in the world, um, but that we're, we're all uh, contributing positively both domestically and, and internationally. Um, Thank you both for, for joining us today. Let's do this again, Jason. Mm-hmm. This is fun. I'm, I, I, I'd love like to. clarifies our thinking on the being forced to talk about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, good times. Thank you both for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this special edition of Development Unplugged, produced by the Canadian Council for International Cooperation, with support from Crestview Strategy.